Uh, we're going to talk about the future again, not uh, some far off science fiction future and not a dystopian future, but about what's happening and that's so easily ignored in our preoccupations with dystopia. In the first installment of this two-part episode, I talked about the big picture, the framing you know, for the role of technology in creating wealth and well-being. And I talked about the obvious fact that while politics matter, which is beyond obvious, they can matter a lot, politicians and policymakers aren't innovators or inventors. So to state it again, and for those who missed the first episode, the first part of this episode, um, you can go back and listen to it. I invite you to do that, but uh, you don't have to listen to it first to hear, hear part two. They, they, they stand alone, so to speak. But to state again, when I summarize, what I you know, outlined rather in the, uh, in the first uh, part of this two-part episode, the future of our economy, uh, the future of wealth increased, the future of economic growth is utterly dominated by technology progress. And technology progress, as I again said in my earlier episode, um, it happens essentially exogenous to the political class, but they'll take credit for it. They can, and the, the political frameworks that are policies, they certainly matter. They can impede or they can encourage innovators through all kinds of direct, indirect means. So that matters. But we need to we need to know what the stakes are. What you know what what the potential is for the future, in some ways to have a way to think about why why it's so important to get our politics right. So in this episode, what I'd like to do is expand on the promises of what's possible uh, through the you know, filter of the aphorism that Peter Drucker created back in the 90s, the aphorism being, you predict the future based on what's already happening. Um, the biggest single thing that's happened uh, in our economy in recent decades is the emergence of an entirely new infrastructure for society, you know, the cloud. And it's a uh, it's a word that uh, you've heard before. It's the, it's the title of my book again, The Cloud Revolution. Uh, that's and, you'll, and as I'll explain, you'll see why I chose that as the title. Uh, the impact of the cloud is not just about e-commerce. It's relevant there or about social media. It's, uh, it's beyond obvious it's relevant there or fintech or the use and abuse of uh, of a blockchain in cryptocurrencies you know, that piggybacks the cloud's infrastructure. But it's uh, it's important, I think, to understand what the cloud really is. And let's define let's define it, if you like, to frame uh, our discussion. The cloud, it sounds like sort of a cooked up uh, PR term, you know, it's a, uh, but it's a word that describes something that's unique. And it's not a PR term, and it is certainly a vague term, but it's the cloud is as different from the internet as the internet was different from the telephone network. And the, the cloud, of course, uses the infrastructure of the internet, but it's a um, it's a radically different kind of interest, infrastructure. Easiest, easiest way to think about it is to think in terms of what most people do with the cloud. And in fact, what people do is they look for advice. You're not looking for computation. You're not looking for a computer to perform a spreadsheet for you on Excel. A, a good example, the difference between uh, computation that's done remotely and getting advice and the way the cloud operates is to think of something that pretty much everybody does these days. So use a mapping program. When you use a mapping program from your phone, and let's stipulate the word phone is anachronistic by itself, since very few people use their smartphone 
for phone calls, most of the things you do with your smartphone is um, do other things, and almost all of which are made possible by the connection and the capabilities of the cloud. Uh, and you can do that without typing, as you know. You can use the increasingly effective voice recognition. As, as lousy as uh, the voice recognition still feels like to some people, just think back a decade and what it was like then, or in short, it didn't exist then as a functional way to to talk to, talk to uh, the cloud or talk to computing. In any case, come back to what you do with the cloud. When you, when you ask um, for directions using your smartphone, you're not asking for a computation. You're asking for the cloud to, to recognize where you are obviously where you're going, the alternative routes you can take, provide suggestions and advice on different routes based on traffic, based on road conditions, and increasingly based on things like weather. That combination of, of activities is self-evidently not a calculation of one plus one equals two, nor is it, nor is it a specific direction or control. It is advice. And that's profoundly different than what people use the internet for, say, circa 1990s with AOL and you got mail. Uh, sending mail through the internet is hardly uh, in the category of uh, advice, but it took computers to you know, break down the mail into bits and bytes and reassemble them on the other end on a screen. So that was seen as rather amazing at the time. Again, it's not advice. It's an alternative way of sending mail instead of snail mail using different hardware but it's not advice. If you think about the characteristics of what uh, it feels like to get advice about where, where to go, how to take uh, take a route, or advice about the kinds of uh, Airbnb you might rent, or connecting the two parties, the traveler and the car owner through Uber, these, sort of a, these are advice category functions. If you imagine extending that kind of capability into every quarter of commerce and business, you know, do doctors getting advice and looking at a, an, an x-ray film, uh, not to replace the doctor, but to look at the image in a way that provides advice. Did you notice this? This looks like an anomaly. That kind of feature is self-evidently profoundly different than pure computation. In order to Perform all its functions. Obviously, the, the cloud uses the internet. It uses wireless networks. It uses computers. It uses sensors, and it connects distributed computers to central computers, storage systems. All it connects to smart objects, smart sensors. In effect, at its core, there's, a, there's an array of what you would call, using the sort of economist term, utility class or utility function of centralized supercomputing. We could measure this in all kinds of ways. I mean, this that's sort of a qualitative way of looking at what the cloud is, but to, to have a sense that it's not just a qualitative difference, but the scale difference of the infrastructure to do it is actually unprecedented um, in history. You know, the cloud infrastructure, and it's uh, to remind you that uh, this is not the uh, end days, if you like, for the cloud. It's not that we're at the beginning of the end of the building out the infrastructure. We're at the sort of the end of the beginning of the building out of the cloud infrastructure. An infrastructure, by the way, that's only a couple decades old, that we began creating this this um, this machine. It's not just one company that, that uh, operates in the cloud. It's dozens and dozens of companies. There are dominant companies. You know, Amazon and Microsoft, famously or infamously, are are dominant players in cloud infrastructure, but they're far from the only ones. But if you think about the scale of the infrastructure, where we are in these early days, it gives you a sense of 
uh, of what the potential is for it to change um, the, the economy, not change the social media. Social media is sort of a fully baked function uh, of what the cloud allows, and, and one of the earliest and easiest ones. The scale of the cloud, which is poorly appreciated, is could be compared to the scale of other infrastructures. For example, the annual to, the total collective annual global spending on hardware and physical hardware to build out the cloud infrastructure is already greater than all of the world's electric utilities now spend on electric infrastructure. It's really quite something. And if you think in terms of uh, you know marginal, what that means in marginal dollar terms, economic terms, that when you spend the new dollar on electric infrastructure, you typically get this same amount of electricity for the same dollar spent. Not entirely true because if you spend uh, every every marginal dollar spent on solar and wind, gets you less electricity than you got before. Gets you different kind of electricity, but doesn't get you more. So it has, if you like, not to go down a side rabbit hole, it has a negative productivity impact. When you spend the same money and get less output, you have the inverse of productivity. Productivity is when you spend the same money and you get more output, uh, which makes societies and economies wealthier. But in any case, the, the thing that's interesting about the cloud and what's going on is that the marginal dollar spent uh, on the next the next piece of hardware in the cloud, everyone knows, it's, as soon as you state it, that you're getting more power, more value for the marginal dollar. We still have not just Moore's Law going on, but just the general uh, pace of technology improvement in computing and communications infrastructure. While it's slowed a little bit, it's still moving on at a blistering pace. A marginal new dollar spent on, let's say, um, steel or, or building infrastructure gets you a nice, somewhat nicer building, but it's not as much nice. Not as, it doesn't improve as much in terms of its qualitative or quantitative value as does a dollar, a new dollar spent. Uh, computing infrastructure. So it's rather unusual to have uh, infrastructure of, let's say, scale comparable to the electric utility industry globally and bigger, in fact, and growing faster, but to have every marginal dollar spent producing more economic value by arguably a factor of 500%, maybe even a thousand percent more per dollar. This is profoundly anti-inflationary ultimately and profoundly productivity enhancing. The connectivity that cloud has, maybe let's look at another scale thing. Uh, think of infrastructures like highways. I mean, highways are physical infrastructures just as the cloud is anchored in physical infrastructure. There's not one you can see like the highway. And the, the, you know, the phrase information superhighways, which, um, by the way, wasn't coined by Al Gore, though he famously uh, used that phrase. It was uh, a phrase uh, coined by a, by a communications uh, engineer that's uh, Bell Labs uh, about uh, 15 to 20 years before Al Gore thought to use it. But in any case, the idea of an information superhighway is a pretty good way to, to sort of visualize any infrastructure. But the information highways that make the cloud possible just utterly dwarf uh, the scale of any you know concrete or asphalt highways. I mean, uh, highways that are uh, you know concrete and asphalt to carry cars and trucks, you know, they, they're measured uh, the total sort of route miles and tens of thousands of miles. That's a lot. Uh, if you count local roads, you can get to you know hundreds of thousands of miles. And then the traditional communication systems, you know, they started with the telegraph and then moved to the telephone and then to the wired internet. I mean, those route miles, they're much greater in terms of if you just think of scale and infrastructure. They're, they collectively span millions of miles. So there's millions of 
the root miles. But if we think about where the cloud is and the, the network that it uses, both the traditional communications network, the glass cables, and the wireless networks, if you sort of added it up uh, in root mile terms, you get to hundreds of billions of root miles uh, for the network that the cloud rests on. You wouldn't use that just for talking. You don't need that just for talking. The, the mere millions of miles, which is a thousand times less, was more than adequate to connect everybody to just to talk to each other. Clearly, something else is being done with all those root miles. And these aren't these are just um, uh, network connections to uh, between you and somebody else. These are network connections between you and other smart objects, between you and your car, between you and what Google engineers called warehouse scale computers. That is the data centers at the center of the cloud are also uh, a feature that's new in the infrastructure society. And warehouse scale data centers, warehouse scale computers, it's just hard, it's hard to visualize what that really means as well. So again, to give a sense of scale, of the magnitude of this new infrastructure, and therefore its implications. And, and to digress briefly, the point of the magnitudes is not just that they're amazing in and of themselves, is that the magnitudes of this infrastructure that are being built are being built because the market is using these infrastructures. They're not being built just because of subsidies. There are some subsidies involved, but they're trivial. They're being built because they create a function. The market's building these things because they're being used and we're expanding them at a toward pace because the new uses are still expanding. So the scale tells you something important about the magnitude of this new infrastructure. So back, back to sort of the warehouse scale data centers and have a, a sense of the magnitude of the infrastructure we're building. I use a different uh, analogy. Why don't we, we could analogize the data centers with skyscrapers. And the reason I do that is because they're both uh, real estate. In fact, there are real estate investment trusts, REITs, uh, both in commercial office buildings and also in data centers. Uh, these are a form of commercial real estate. The difference between the two classes of real estate is one is um, call it a warehouse scale or enterprise scale office building that's vertical. With under a single roof that could be a million square feet or more uh, that has economic value. That's why it's built. That's why it's rented out. That's why that's why they they were created. And you could say the same about data centers, except instead of housing people, uh, they house uh, computing, storage, and communications functionality. You know, to to serve in a very similar way as uh, in, at the center of an economic activity, as skyscrapers serve a function at the center of great cities. Uh, for an econo for economic activities. So warehouses um, store things, data centers store things, warehouses, skyscrapers uh, are, are centers of commerce, so are data centers. In fact, the New York Times back in 1913 um, coined the term that I, uh, I borrowed in my book, Cathedral of Commerce. And they used that to describe the world's first skyscraper. Uh, the, that was the, uh, by the way, not the Empire State Building, which was built later, it was a 792-foot-high Woolworth building. It was the uh, the world's uh, it was the first first true skyscraper, and it was the world's the world's fir first one of anything vaguely that tall. Uh, it was considered an amazing thing, and then only um, about 20 years later, a little less than 20 years later, the Empire State Building got built. And it's for those of you who haven't visited Manhattan or forgotten, that's. Uh, Quite a bit higher. It's, it's it's like stacking a Washington Monument on top of the 
were worth building. The Empire State Building's 1,250 feet high. And those that whole class of buildings became, uh, in the 20th century, essentially the iconic cathedrals of commerce for the great economic expansion of the last century. So Empire State class buildings, each of them can have under a single roof, you know, a million square feet or more. Uh, it's interesting that they have a lot in common with data centers, or warehouse scale computers, as Google engineers call them. Each data center at the enterprise class, call it the Empire State class, can have a million square feet under one building. What's interesting about this comparison is that both those classes of real estate, it costs about the same to build per square foot. It's kind of interesting, but the economic uh, value is rather different. In fact, uh, you can measure the economic value inversely by what uh, they, the space rents out for. So data centers rent out for about 500% more per square foot than do the uh, world's skyscrapers. That's because of this economic fact that the the data centers, the digital cathedrals of the uh, of the 21st century, uh, do something very very different. Uh, in fact, maybe we'll give you another example in computing terms that gives you a sense of how different they are. Just 10 square feet. Remember, we're building the data centers up by millions of square feet per year now. Just 10 square feet of one data center has more computing horsepower than all of the world's computers had in 1980. I mean, that economic and physical scale of each square foot of data center uh, is really quite remarkable. In, uh, in energy terms, because as all of you know, I've spent a lot of my time talking about energy. It's also notable that uh, data centers use about a hundred times more electricity per square foot than does a skyscraper. So here we are about a century after the you know, Empire State Building was built and completed. And the entire world has you know, maybe 50 uh, buildings of that size or bigger, uh, which is not nothing. And we're still building more of them. But again, uh, let's compare it to hyperscale data centers, the Empire State Building class, million square foot data centers. So the world has about 50 Empire State class buildings. The world has over 500 Empire State class data centers, and we're still building them at a torrid pace. Uh, this is unprecedented in terms of the scale of an infrastructure that has been added to society. We can use, like I, like I, as I said in the last uh, episode, we could use a, a metric that is a different one, maybe easier to understand. And I spent a little bit of time on it in, in part one, is to look at what you get uh, from the services that these, this proliferation of these massive data centers create at the center of the cloud. You could measure it in terms of the utility function, if you like, in the most sort of basic way, the sort of the computations per second you get per dollar when you rent the cloud services. It's typically what you're doing when you're using your, your mapping program or you're using your smartphone for anything or doing enterprise class you know, software for businesses to manage payroll, to give any, any form of uh, advice in hospitals and research. You're renting, uh, you're purchasing uh, utility class services that are created remotely. So the computations per second per dollar that you um, that you get by renting uh, access to the functionality of the cloud, that metric, which is an economic metric, is improving at a thousand fold per decade. That is, you're getting a thousand fold more computations per second for the same dollar every 10 years. Uh, this is, again, unprecedented 
in, in human history. It has predictive implications. We can talk about, which I will in a second, some of the specific implications, but broadly speaking, you know it has to have some kind of implication. And, and to not to, to digress into what I started my uh, part one on, on the sort of the political dynamic, it's probably useful to know that half of the world's, fully half of the world's data centers are in the United States of America. Uh, that's just where they happen to be. We're uh, the pioneer and the leader in this class, this new utility class of computing. It's spreading around the world, which is a good thing. Uh, the United States has about six-fold more data centers than China at the moment. China will uh, expand this capability in their infrastructure for sure, uh, but we have qu quite a remarkable head start. But aside from you know com the competitive position, because ultimately every country uh, will take advantage and is taking advantage of these capabilities, let's just look at some specific examples of um, the implications of the convergence of this kind of astonishing computational capabilities in conjunction with new capabilities and materials, which is, as I've uh, outlined in other podcasts and I do in my book, a lot of the materials advances are amplified and made possible by the computational advice-giving capacities of the cloud. We do, we do experiments in silico instead of in the physical world first. We do them in a computer, in simulations to develop new classes of materials, to test out new kinds of machines, to analyze how a machine will work before we actually build it. This kind of um, uh, so-called digital twinning or uh, experiments in silico is arguably one of the fastest growing features of uh, engineering and science development. And, and again, uh, not just arguably, but in fact, a radical qualitative and quantitative change in how we can do engineering and how we can develop new products and how we can test new products, both for efficacy and safety. A good example, specific example of a new class of product that we've I've talked about before that we've that's been in been in the public uh, sort of mind lexicon for a very long time. Of course, is the robot, and by that I don't mean the uh, bolted to the floor automaton the automobile factories use. And I talked about that in the part one of this episode, this series. Uh, but the mobile robot, the robot that can uh, walk around, roll around, and work with people. Mobile robots have a uniquely different function in an economy than bolted down robots does require an economist to know that they have different functionality. And it's not that ro mobile robots, uh, we have to imagine that they might emerge. They already exist as a business. So the, the global global business of uh, manufacturing and selling mobile robots is already a, about a $15 billion industry and looks like, uh, based on, it's pretty reasonable and I think conservative forecasts will grow, excuse me, will grow something like tenfold uh, before the year 2030 hits, before we're out of the the roaring 2020s. Uh, you know, what you do with mobile robots? Well, you, you 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 use them to help people be more productive. That's what you do with mobile robots. You allow them to work where you work, work in the environments where humans work, including on, on, on manufacturing lines, but not just there, but in service environments, in warehouses, in restaurants. Uh, mobile robots, business robots, service robots is arguably uh, one of the most interesting and fastest growing class of an entirely new kind of product and machine that's going into widespread utilization. Again, we don't have to guess whether or not it could happen because this is a revolution that's already happened. It's already an uh, industry that's measured uh, north of $10 billion a year. There are already something on the order of a million mobile robots in the world 
trivial number uh, in a sense compared to the global population, but it's a much bigger number than zero than zero and growing fast. Now, why would we care? Well, uh, because the working age population in, in the uh, Western world is shrinking. In fact, China cares arguably far more than we do. They're working age population, the share of their population that's working age defined as between 15 and 64. Although I think that economic definition leaves something wanting. It's an awful lot of 15-year-olds are not quote unquote working age in our, our country, but they, they certainly are in much of the world. But the working age population in, in China uh, started collapsing uh, 10 years ago. And by the year 2040, the US will have a larger share of its population that are in the working age than China will. But the US working age population has also been slowly shrinking, much more slowly than uh, China's, starting around uh, 2015. And based on uh, our fertility rate, demographic trends are legal and obviously illegal immigration. Um, the best estimates are that our working age population, the, 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 the shrinkage of that will slow down and stop very soon, right around 2030, and it will stabilize. We'll, we'll have about the same working age population in 2050 and 2060 as we will at the end of the 2020s, which, by the way, is very um, uh, interesting in terms of competitive economic environment for the world. We'll have one of the world's uh, biggest populations, not the biggest, India, obviously China and Bangladesh will still be bigger, but we'll have we'll have an economy uh, that is much more economically productive and have a share of the working age population that's only only a, uh, you know a little lower than what will be going on in the less developed countries. That is, our working age population will be at the sixty percent level. Sixty percent of the population will be a working age in twenty thirty, and it will be higher uh, in the less developed countries, about sixty five percent. But I would argue that that uh, uh, spread uh, is not enough to uh, to give the emerging economies any profound economic advantage. So mobile robots, big deal, it's going to grow uh, at least by 400% in the next half dozen years in terms of the number of robots that move into the market and the kinds of things that, that mobile robots will be doing. The kinds of things they're doing, by the way, uh, the kinds of things typically that we would rather have people not do, uh, that we rather uh, free up the human labor to be upskilled. A good example in the biggest vector at the moment, the fastest growth for mobile robots is in the um, supply chain, literally in warehouses. Warehouses have been uh, short labor for a long time. Even in a recession, they're going to probably be short labor in warehouses. So a good example of the uh, specific revolution, to use the Drucker line again, that's, that's already happened would be the mobile robot that Boston Dynamics uh, invented and is now selling. And by that, I don't mean the uh, one that you see on YouTube videos, the you know the true anthropomorphic walking robot Atlas that does backflips and dances and that stuff. That's not for commercial, not commercially available. But rather a robot they call Stretch, which uh, rolls around on wheels, has a one arm um, and that's articulated and suction cups rather than grabbers. And Stretch was designed to uh, to uh, take boxes off trucks that pull up the warehouses. The reason Stretch. It's now commercially, uh, I would say, a success, and that was only this year, is that Stretch was the first robot to, to match the goal, which is to do to, to unload as many boxes as a person could do in an hour, which is about uh, 800 boxes an hour have to be unloaded, typically, what a person could do, 50-pound boxes, not you know the typical boxes that you see pictures of 
that are uh, used for transporting um, goods uh, in semi-trailers, trucks. So once uh, Boston Dynamics uh, announced that it was commercially available, uh, DHL uh, bought out the production run for the 2022 period. They're not the only one making Boston Dynamics uh, robots of this class. Uh, in fact, there are several like it. The important point here is that the reason you would uh, rent, buy, or you know, hire such a robot is that it allows the person doing the low-skill task to be upskilled to fill the gap on things like, well, for example, driving the truck itself, which turns out is far, far, far harder for robots to do. Now, that'll happen one day, but not, not in the usefully foreseeable future, but in the further future. Anyway, the point of the um, the robot, the cobot, the the collaborative robot is that it allows the shortage of labor to be freed up, to be upskilled. That's a win-win. That means that the task becomes less expensive to perform because the robot, in this case, amortized over its useful life is cheaper than the person was to do the same task. The person is upskilled, gets a higher wage. Everybody wins. The employee wins, the employer wins, and the robot wins. The robot's got a job. So lots more of that coming. I mean, this is this is really quite remarkable. Uh, the, the robot's not exactly a new idea. It's been around since Greek times. Humans have imagined uh, automatons that can assist them uh, to do useful tasks. And of course, in science fiction, to perform dystopian tasks in war fighting. But now robots are, are real. They're the first really uh, remarkably new class of what uh, economists call general purpose technologies that have emerged since the automobile itself was invented. We're, we, we are on the cusp of uh, what you could call a Model T moment for the robot. Uh, we're not quite there yet. There's, there's no uh, uh, robot that quite fits that pivot point. But as you all know, uh, there were millions of cars in the world uh, collectively before the Model T moment happened. So the first 25 years of the automobile era that uh, took place before the advent of mass production and low-cost production of cars came, came into being. So let's look at a couple other examples quickly, or a few others, of the revolutions, a specific class of technologies that are changing through the lens, again, of, of uh, uh, forecasting technologies or services that have already happened and that are made possible by the, the convergence of new materials and machines uh, mediated by, enabled by, or amplified by the cloud. The personal diagnostics. And so we've just come out of, for many people who are still living uh, in um, in fear of the horrific pandemic. In personal diagnostics, um, you understand what this means. We're talking about not uh, diagnosing uh, a, a class of illness, but rather you knowing a lot about your personal health, your heart rate, your blood glucose levels, whether you've been affected by something, what it is. Personal diagnostics is an industry that's already in the sort of $80 billion range, expected to rise to like $400 billion. It's not It's not that it's... Uh, uh, it's, not, it's not the class of diagnostics that's done at a laboratory when you show up, but rather, as all of you know, uh, your, uh, smartwatches, Fitbits, all kinds of devices can provide useful, real-time, um, medically relevant uh, biological information about just you, you, you personally. The 
potential to do a lot more of that is no longer speculative. Many of these technologies are making their way in services through FDA approval. Naturally, some of these things require FDA approval. Some don't because they're not intrusive. Uh, Apple has wisely uh, mounted a very large team, I believe, of hundreds of doctors who are working not only on making sure medical diagnostic capabilities of your phone or your smartwatch are, are accurate and useful, but also um, you know, thread the difficult needle with FDA uh, compliance or, and or approval. It's a big deal. If they could do personal medical diagnostics, you don't have to be an economist to know why that's a big deal. The other uh, domain that's, uh, that's interesting here is, of course, virtual reality and augmented reality, which has been in, in, in artfully uh, renamed the metaverse. The metaverse is sort of, if you like, a feature of augmented and virtual reality. It's, it, is, it is not the entire constellation of things that are relevant and important. They really, uh, I guess, from my perspective, uh, the most relevant and important features of virtual and augmented reality are what it means for the service industries that we would uh, think of with respect to designing and operating industrial equipment, machinery, construction sites, medicine, um, if you like to have flight simulators for uh, doctors. We, we, we know that uh, it's entirely possible to take, and we know it's possible because it's being done, uh, to take high resolution images um, of your body, a human body, uh, and to create a, a digital uh, virtual image of where, where uh, what you look like that a physician can see and then do the equivalent of what pilots do in flight simulation. They can simulate uh, an operation that might be complex uh, on a virtual image of you to begin to first figure out how to navigate and avoid you know, your specific uh, challenges with respect to this particular surgery. This kind of a simulation uh, is no longer speculative. There's several companies providing those kind of simulators for surgeons and physicians. But this is perhaps in many respects far more relevant as the technology gets cheaper for training uh, people in the in the uh, in the so-called skilled uh, trades or for practicing in sports. And obviously, all this these technologies have, and many of them have had first application in. Uh, in games and video games, and it'd be a big market. So the, the virtual and augmented reality market today is about $4 billion. Arguably about half of that's in entertainment gaming, but that's still $2 billion that's in commercial businesses. And that business looks like it's gonna grow uh, by 10X, the, the commercial business within the next half dozen years. Uh, and will ultimately uh, overtake the uh, use of virtual augmented reality for entertainment and gaming. Another example of, uh, a class of technology that's really changed, of course, is the formerly hyped, now sort of in the background, uh, class of manufacturing, which is called 3D printing, or you might call it, you know, computational fabrication, if you like. This is where, just as you, I think you, you probably all know what a 3D printer is, but to be clear, uh, just as when you, uh, you create uh, text on a computer screen and then you hit print, obviously the printer um, uses ink and uh, prints what looks like a two-dimensional image. Obviously, it has a third dimension, the very, very, very thin layer of ink. And you, you get a printed page. Uh, as you can imagine, if I made an image of, of an object uh, that I wanted to manufacture, what you do with the 3D printer is hit print. And the, um, the 3D printer assembles in three dimensions out of plastic or metals that object. It essentially grows the object. The interesting, about, the interesting thing about 3D printing is that you can print things 
effectively the way nature grows things. This this has uh, this has this opens up new possibilities for making parts that simply couldn't exist before. Uh, if you think about how you create a, a hole in something, you have to drill a hole. Nature doesn't drill holes in things necessarily. Nature creates volumes by growing around something. You can do that with 3D printers in complex shapes, creating new classes of uh, products and services that heretofore didn't exist. It's not a Star Trek class of you know make make something from nothing, but rather it's uh, a, a uh, an adjunct to, not a replacement for. Uh, the kinds of manufacturing that's already done today. It's it's a reasonably big industry already. It's north of $15 billion a year. That's not that's not nothing by global standards. But it looks like uh, based on the tools and technologies finally having matured after two decades of, of hype and promise. And by the way, there was two decades of hype and promise before we got to the Model T moment for the car. Um, so the that industry looks like it's on track to go growing at least 400% in the next half dozen years as we've now got into the era where we have, again, to use the analogy, the, the sort of the Model T moment uh, for 3D printers. Big deal. Uh, does it make a difference to you personally? Sure, because it'll change the kinds of products and services that you'll be able to access in your very near future. Uh, let's just turn uh, to a few other examples and and, and I can state Again, perhaps obviously, uh, I dive into all these examples in quite a bit of detail in my in my book and many more. Uh, if you think about what's going on in transportation um, the markets, that it'd be impossible not to mention the drone. I mean, the drones are different now. It's not not that uh, remotely piloted or self piloted aircraft uh, are a particularly new idea. In fact, the first drone flight uh, took place before World War II. Um, U.S. Uh, Navy uh, had built and flew a remotely piloted and, and self-flying uh, aircraft. It was just not very effective. It was too expensive. It's too difficult. It had to wait for all the, cl the class of technologies that, that now exist, including, by the way, the cloud, not just the cloud for thinking about how you would design a drone and simulate the the construction and, uh, and prior to manufacturing of new classes of drones, but equally importantly, the, the cloud as we get to uh, drones uh, having significant commercial functionality, their flight control systems will have to be operated through a cloud-like function. Anyway, drones are no longer, I'm not talking about the toy drones, uh, I'm talking about commercial drones. Drones are no longer uh, a product that we have to imagine being useful. They're already being used extensively, say, by the insurance industry to so, to look at damage to roofs rather than having to climb on the roof. You, The insurance adjuster has a drone. This is true in, in industri all kinds of industrial sites where drones are used for inspection. They're used for inspecting whether or not their wind turbine blades are cracked. All, all those kinds of inspection, inspection functions are already a big industry. What's what's interesting about drones is that they're now uh, commercially viable, mostly elsewhere in the world, for regulatory reasons and other factors, commercially viable way to deliver products, particularly small ones that have high value. A company called Wingcopter in Germany has uh, received uh, recently an order for something on the order of 10,000 of its drones for use in African markets for delivering uh, packages that don't weigh more than a few kilograms, you know, say, call it 10 or 15 pounds, that uh, are high value, including medical medical products and devices and medicine, uh, and, you know, vaccines and so forth, or antibiotics, uh, where the roads are uh, limited or non-existent, far cheaper, faster. Uh, that market, probably $100 billion, 
by the year 2030, up from barely 10 billion today. Uh, would it matter to Americans? Well, here, here's a factoid to think about. The uh, During the great lock, lockdowns, uh, the one unprecedented thing that happened, unsurprisingly, is that 20% of the U.S. population moved that year in 2020 uh, and 2021. 20% of the population moved, uh, and they moved out of urban areas into rural areas. Uh, J.P. Morgan analysis recently looked at the the people and surveyed who moved, and they came to the conclusion that about half those people aren't going to move back. That's really quite a shift, having 10% of the population permanently move uh, in one year or so out of urban into rural areas. Obviously, a lot of those people are the work from anywhere class, you know, Zoom class that can work from anywhere. But set aside whether that's everybody, because it's not, but even that that magnitude is uh, meaningful commercially, economically, demographically. But the reason they can do that is not just that they can work from anywhere, it's that they can enjoy the products and services uh, delivered to them when they live pretty much anywhere. And when you start to think about delivering small products over larger ex-urban and rural areas, this is where you quickly run into the economic value of using drones to deliver these small packages rather than big trucks. And that's already beginning, as I said, in Africa, uh, in Australia, and it will certainly expand here as the products become inexpensive. They pass regulatory hurdles, which are being resolved. And then for after that, what comes next? Well, you know, um, maybe the uh, long-promised flying car, right? The air taxi uh, is no longer fanciful. Uh, it's clearly feasible. There are at least at least a hundred different designs at various levels of commercial development, including by, you know, very respected companies from Boeing and Airbus uh, to Aston Martin of all, all companies. So we'll see, but that'll take a little longer, uh, not least because the economics are more challenging and more importantly, uh, the uh, FAA safety certifications for carrying people are rather different than for, you know, carrying packages. But we'll get there. But in the short term, let's call it the, the roaring 2020s, drone delivery is no longer no longer a, a, a crazy idea. And then we have uh, uh, new classes of, uh, of discovery that are pair up with the cloud, if you like. This is what I would call computational microscopy. Uh, the new classes of microscopes, which really aren't in the news a lot because well, people aren't particularly interested as interested in microscopes as, as I am and some other people are. But, you know, uh, microscopes matter. As we know, um, as you may or may not know, famously, the you know, discovery of bacteria, the idea that there were bacteria and germs was certainly cemented and made uh, made into science by the advent of a microscope that allowed the, the uh, scientists of that era, you know, centuries ago to, to physically see the, uh, the pathogens. Uh, seeing uh, what's going on in the interstices of, of cellular life and what makes everything possible for life on our planet, seeing things really does matter in science. And it's extraordinarily difficult to uh, to see living tissue, living molecules and viruses. But the invention of, uh, of a class of microscope that's called a cryo-EM, cryo-electronic electron microscope, for which Nobel Prize was awarded. Uh, this is a microscope that for the first time ever in history was able to essentially make a movie, uh, movie of a... Uh, of a living folding protein. This is a kind of thing that leads to radical advances in our understanding of human biology and biology in general, and then new cures and new medicines. It's a big deal, let's just say. Uh, computational microscopy is made possible by 
self-evidently com computers uh, and by new classes of materials. A single computational microscope, a cryo-EM microscope generates uh, a quantity of data that's you know measured in petabytes. It's an astonishing, astonishing quantity of data. In fact, one, there's one of these microscopes uh, generates more data than the in, entire internet uh, generated in a year back at the uh, back in the early days of the internet. It's a it's an astonishing uh, tool. It's the kind of uh, tool that, in the domains of science and research, and the future of medicine, future understanding of our biological systems and nature. These are the kinds of tools that will lead to discoveries, which today you we, we can't imagine. Literally, we, we can, one cannot say, "Oh, this is the discovery we'll have." We can talk about the class of discovery. Discovery will understand weather better. We'll get better at weather forecasting. It will change how we talk about things like climate change. It'll also change uh, the productivity of industries that matter to us. I mean, the productivity of the of the digital economy that is news information entertainment uh, finance that that part of our uh, economy which comprises about 10 percent of gdp that part of the economy has been heavily digitalized has gotten more productive in fact if we use the economist terms if we look at the uh, output per per unit of uh, dollar input the digital industries since the uh, the dawn of the cloud, if you like, Y2K, digital industries are something on the order of 60% more productive. That's a huge improvement of output per unit of dollar input. Uh, this, this is what creates, again, wealth, both not just corporate wealth with businesses that do these things, but for society at large, because you get more products and services uh, for less money. Streaming movies are much easier and cheaper to be simplistic than going to the movie and buying a ticket and have to be there, right? I mean, it's just it's a different experience, but it's also for the same product or service, profoundly cheaper. What we have uh, is far less progress in the productivity of the physical industries or the healthcare industry. They are a little better than they were in Y2K. They're, you know, the the, the physical industries, manufacturing and uh, in construction, they're about twenty percent better. Not. Not sixty or seventy percent better in productivity terms than the Y two K, in the healthcare industry, it's maybe five percent better based on on uh, honest metrics. So in other words, every, every incremental improvement in the output, we'll call it, of healthcare requires more dollars and more people. What you want is better and more outputs for fewer dollars and fewer people. That's what productivity is. That's what computational microscopy. That's what even things like drones delivering medical. Products. It's what the advance in virtual and augmented reality to improve surgical procedures and analytics. That's what personal diagnostics. All these things, which are now real and emerging, but still only proto-commercial. These things will change the productivity of healthcare. We'll finally get more and better healthcare for fewer dollars in. So healthcare won't become a drag on the economy any more than movies are a drag on the economy, if you like. So it's it's a remarkable transformation. So let's wrap up with sort of the macro where I often begin. In fact, again, I sort of began my when I began my book and it's in its introductory sections. I I started with the macro rather than the specific. And in, in the macro is this: that there are only three domains of uh, activities to make civilization possible. But that I mean the things that we do to make it possible to live, thrive, entertain, cure, fix, really come from just the three domains of the machines that we invent and build, the materials available to build them, and our knowledge or information about all the above.
right? Those three domains intersect to create what's possible. And if you think about the things I've talked about, they fall in one of those three domains. A cloud is the information domain. This is artificial intelligence, machine learning. It's all in the information sphere. The uh, material sphere are the not uh, are the new classes of uh, of uh, smart materials, materials that are reactive, that are in effect self-aware. Bioelectronics. These are the electronics that, uh, electronic components that are biocompatible that we can wear, have implanted, that we can even literally ingest. And of course, the new classes of machines that we have from 3D printers to robots to uh, the uh, molecular scale machines that can make uh, transistors. These, these are very different kinds of machines. Each of these changes and, and if you like many revolutions in each sphere are all occurring simultaneously. And that's really, that's really incendiary. This is like the proverbial perfect storm. You have three great forces occurring simultaneously in our time. We've been there before. This has happened uh, a century ago. In fact, if we drew the same, imagine the Venn diagram of the three spaces, information, materials, and machines, the, the whole 20th century was propelled by the fact that there was a constellation of revolutions in each of the three spheres occurring contemporaneously. It's what happened a century ago. That's what propelled the entire 20th century. Again, just to be simplistic, the information revolution at that time was radio and telephony and the professionalization of science itself. And the materials revolution at that time was the development of high-strength alloys and polymers, plastics, and pharmaceuticals, which weren't invented in 1920. They became commercially useful. And similarly, the, the machines revolution at that time wasn't one machine. There were a number of new machines entered uh, commercial viability, the car itself, the aircraft, and of course, electric power plants. But all this, it wasn't one of those things that caused the economic efflorescence of the 20th century. It was the fact that all those took place contemporaneously. The intersection of all three of them happening at the same time is what created the, the sort of the original roaring, the roaring 20s of a century ago, and what will create a sort of roaring 20s of our time. I got to end, though, by uh, acknowledging um, the dystopian realities of our politics and wars and all the rest, because people when when will say, and uh, odds are high in your head, is this thought, this time it's different. I mean, look what's going on in the world. Look at the Ukrainian mess. Look at our political crises. Look at Look at the debates we're having and the riots we've had last year and the pandemic we had and all these terrible things that are going on and, and fake news and the worries about social media, income inequality. Okay. The, all, all these things are true and all of them are important. But just for perspective, uh, for those of you who don't know your history of the 1920s, just use the magic uh, Google machine, uh, which is honest about <laughs> these kinds of historic facts, whether you think uh, that they're honest or uh, figure on a scale of the algorithms. And yeah, there's always some finger on scale of algorithms. Algorithms are written by people, by the way, which means that they, by definition, have some inherent bias built into them for better or for worse or intentionally or unintentionally. But anyway, I digress. Use use a Google machine to look at what was going on in the 1920s. I mean, 1920 was only a couple of years after the horrific war, obviously. So you know, it was after that horrific pandemic, the 1918 flu, which most people don't know, lasted three years, right into right into 1920, the third wave. And that particular pandemic, uh, in per capita terms, killed about 400% more people, which is 
pretty shocking at any level. And importantly, it preferentially killed the young, unlike this horrific COVID scourge, which preferentially killed the old. Uh, you know that if in our time, we'd had a death rate 400% higher and it was killing the young. Imagine the social, uh, political, and emotional toll that would have taken in our time. That's what was going on there. 1921, there was a huge recession, the biggest recession until the Great Depression. There was the Red Scare. People were worried about communism taking over the world after just a few years on the heels of the Bolshevik Revolution. We had race rights in America that involved massive loss of life and injury, labor strikes that also involved loss of life. We had prohibition, a, a constitutional amendment, for goodness sake, passed. I mean, think of what it takes to pass a constitutional amendment. Amendment. The states and Congress passed a constitutional amendment in 1920 to ban consumption of a product that human beings have been consuming beneficially, <laughs> mostly, since before written history. Amazing. And that stayed on the books for more than a decade. We also had at that time the horrific, grotesque eugenics movement in ascendance, where the idea was that uh, certain classes of people who were too stupid to be allowed to procreate, so we sterilized them, literally. By the way, they were typically poor people, of course. And eugenics was a movement fully embraced and endorsed as quote, unquote, air quotes, scientific, proven in the science, and em embraced and endorsed by every major university. The presidents of all the Ivy Leagues all embraced the quote, science of eugenics. We had yellow journalism then. There were 20,000 plus newspapers in America, many publishing three times a day. Wasn't enough news to write about. I mean, uh, uh, this is, so what did they do? They created fake news. And there was income inequality at that time, but epic proportions far greater that we had than we have today still. The, the, the scale of wealth differential between the quote robber barons of that era and our tech barons of our era and the average and the, and the lower uh, income classes far greater than people were very worried about uh, in income inequality at that time. The point of all that is that we've been there. I mean, these are the kinds of problems that we have to try to solve and work out. These are serious issues, but there are, related to, but exogenous from the kinds of growth that's possible and the kind of growth that actually happened. What we've done instead today is convince people to be pessimistic rather than realistic and realistic about what's possible in the future gets labeled as optimism. In fact, if I use in this to, to end on a, on a downbeat and an upbeat, uh, if we look at what Gallup, Gallup does a poll on the question, I've been doing it for a number of decades, what percentage of Americans are less or more optimistic about the future. And what they found is that the current state of uh, American sentiment is at a record low level of uh, the absence of optimism. It's the lowest level of optimism that they've measured in three decades. Uh, the question they ask is what, what percentage of American adults think that the, today's youth will have better living standard in the future uh, than they do. Uh, it, uh, that, that question gets 42% of adults believe that. And obviously that means a majority don't believe that. This is the uh, this is a low point uh, in 30 years of polling. And that's because I think, not because the future isn't bright, but because we spent so much time uh, being preoccupied with dystopia. I guess you could call that fake news, but anyway, what we believe uh, was possible actually matters. It's not to be a Pollyanna, it's not that you believe that naively that we don't have problems, but rather believing uh, what's feasible for the economic future of the country really does matter. In fact, Joel Moikier, who is an economic historian at Northwestern University and one of the great uh, living economists, 
He's a Nobel class economist. I hope he is one that will see a, a nomination at some point. But in any case, he began he began his most recent book with an observation, um, looking back throughout all of history, economic history. And he began his book by pointing out, and I quote, economic growth depends more than most economists think on what people believe. Uh, he didn't mean by believe, naively believe, but what they their confidence in that the future can be better than the past really matters and, and animates the people's capacity and interest to make it actually happen. That matters. Um, let, me end, let, let me end with a quote from um, another uh, uh, sagacious person, which is John Barlow, who, uh, very bright guy, most people who have heard his name know he was a lyricist for the Grateful Dead. He also uh, started up uh, a variety of um, organizations relating to the digital future and the technology future. Uh, and I think uh, really a remarkable thinker and a creative guy. Anyway, he said, the best way to invent the future is to predict it. If you can get enough people to believe your prediction, that is. So it's a variant on Moikir. In fact, he may have, for all I know, read a lot of Moikers. I never met Barlow, but I think he's right. I think the culture of pessimism and dystopia is not constructive. Uh, it can one can be both an optimist and a realist at the same time. It's kind of like you know rubbing your tummy and patting your head at the same time. It's possible. Might take a little practice, but it's possible. And so on that uh, on that note, let me uh, let me remind you again to uh, to give us a, a rating if you're liking these podcasts. Please please uh, rate them on whatever platform you're on. Give us a favorable rating to encourage other people to listen. And, and until next time, uh, we'll come back to uh, maybe a more specific topic uh, on technology and energy. But for now, signing off, this is Mark Mills for The Last Optimist. Optimist.